Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. I'm so glad you're here today, and I'm excited for today's topic. Honestly, it's consumed my thoughts for some time now, and the more I think about it, the more energized I become. I don't know if this happens to you, but you know how it feels when you start to explore something, and the deeper you go, the more inspired you feel? It's like a treasure hunt, and you keep finding bits and pieces until you arrive at that epiphany that is full of rich rewards. That's how I felt about this topic. So hopefully this podcast will help you get a new perspective and a few tools to help you think and live better. And you can share this podcast with a friend because it is a great way to connect with others and it just might be what they need in their life today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about the power of being open and how you can live an open life. On Thanksgiving weekend, Jackie Flug was flying from Athens to Cairo on Egypt Air Flight 648. The plane took off at 8 p.m. on a very routine flight. Ten minutes after takeoff, three Palestinian members of Abu Nidal hijacked the aircraft. They claimed to be Egyptian revolutionaries over the intercom, but they were not. Later, men from the same group would hijack the famous Pan Am Flight 73. The hijackers had guns and grenades. The terrorist leader, Salem Shakur, proceeded to check the passports of all passengers while Omar Rezeg went to the cockpit to change the aircraft's course. At the same time, Shakur had the European, Australian, Israeli, and American passengers sit in the front of the aircraft, while the rest, including the Greeks and Egyptians, were sent to the back. Shakur saw an Australian passenger, Tony Lyons, holding a camera. Believing Lyons had taken a picture of him, Shakur took the camera and ripped out the film before slamming the camera against the wall. Shakur came up to an Egyptian security service agent, Methad Mustafa Kamal, who reached into his coat as if to pull out his passport. Instead, he withdrew a handgun and opened fire, killing Shakur, and he subsequently engaged in a shootout with another hijacker. Nineteen shots were fired until Kamal and the two flight attendants were wounded. In the exchange of fire, the airplane fuselage was punctured, causing a rapid depressurization. The pilots reacted quickly, and the aircraft was forced to descend to 14,000 feet to allow the crew and passengers to breathe with oxygen masks deploying. Now, Libya was the original destination of the hijackers, but due to a lack of fuel and damage from the shootout, they redirected the plane to Malta, an island in the Mediterranean between Tunisia and Italy. While approaching Malta, the aircraft was running low on fuel, experiencing serious problems and carrying wounded passengers. However, Maltese authorities did not give permission for the aircraft to land. The Egypt Air 648 hijackers insisted and forced the pilots to land. As a last-ditch attempt to stop the landing, the runway lights were switched off, but the pilots managed to land the damaged aircraft safely. Now, the Maltese authorities refused to refuel the plane, and the hijackers threatened to execute one passenger every 15 minutes until they got fuel. When the deadline passed, an Israeli woman was led to an open door by a hijacker. They shot her in the back of the head. She tumbled down the stairs to the runway, but didn't die. When she tried to crawl away, the hijacker shot her again. 
Well, Jackie was an American citizen and an obvious target for the hijackers to shoot to get their demands met. She says she remained calm and centered when they led her to the door to be executed. She'd privately said her goodbyes and said a prayer. At that moment, she decided to turn all her worry and anxiety over to God, and she felt a warm feeling flooding through her body. She felt safe, and she remembers thinking to herself, nobody can hurt me. The hijackers can do whatever they want to my body, but I'm going to be safe. If I live, I'll be okay. If I die, I'll be okay. Jackie stood at the top of the stairs and waited. She felt the explosion of the pistol hit the back of her head and felt an awful pressure in her ears. She says it felt as if a massive charge of electricity surged through her skull. Feeling no pain, she tumbled and floated down the stairs in a slow motion haze. When she stopped tumbling, she was amazed to find that she was still conscious. She was face down on the runway at the bottom of the stairs. She opened her eyes. Her face was hidden under her arm. I'm not dead. How can this be? She told herself. Stay calm. Just stay calm. Whatever you do, don't move. Remember what happened to the Israeli woman. Don't look up. Play dead. Keep calm. Keep perfectly still. Well, in the meantime, various plans were devised by police and authorities to take the plane and pressure was mounting from countries around the world with citizens on the plane. So, without warning, Egyptian commandos launched a raid on the plane. They blasted open the passenger doors and luggage compartment doors with explosives. 52 passengers suffocated from the fumes that enveloped the aircraft when the soldiers placed a bomb underneath the fuselage to break into the cabin. More passengers were shot by them. In total, the storming of the aircraft killed 54 of the remaining 87 passengers, as well as two crew members and one hijacker. All the while, Jackie made herself lay still to avoid being shot again. Everyone thought she was dead, even the ambulance crew when they came to remove the bodies. Two men dragged her body about 30 feet and threw her onto a metal bench in the ambulance. Jackie didn't know who they were. She wondered if they might be more hijackers. So she decided to take the risk they were astonished when the woman they thought was dead suddenly asked, are you good guys or bad guys? The ambulance raced Jackie to the only hospital on Malta equipped for brain surgery. Jackie learned later that the hijackers made their own bullets. The one that shot her had a low charge of powder. The bullet shattered the back of her skull and lodged in her brain on the right side. The neurosurgeons removed the bullet and bone splinters from her brain. When her medical coverage ran out, and she had no money to pay, she got angry. She was shot being American, but there was no help from the U.S. government. She wrote a letter to President Ronald Reagan, and to her amazement, she got a call from the White House. She was eventually invited to meet the president, and he arranged for help with her medical expenses. Jackie lost the sight in her left eye and had other brain-related injuries. Her visual impairment prevents her from seeing the left side of whatever she looks at. During her first few months at home, she hit many objects on her left side, and she joked often about the bruises. She sees only the right side of words. She says she went into a restroom in a hotel to wash her hands and wondered why there were urinals in the women's restroom. Outside, she realized she was only used to seeing the last part of the word, women, and she hadn't realized the word on the door was men. Well, Jackie calls her recovery a joyous journey. Why joyous? 
because from it, she has learned more about herself, how to handle new challenges, and how to be more open. Now, when I read this part of her story, I was fascinated by what she said. She said she learned to be more open. Well, what does that mean to be open? And why is this what she learned from this experience? So I started to read and study what it means to be open and the power and joy that comes into your life when you are open. Jackie says, as a result of her learning to be open, the blinders over my eyes were being lifted, revealing a world more beautiful than I imagined. So as a result of her experience, she sees more than what she saw before her accident. Let's take a few minutes then and try to see what Jackie discovered and what you and I can learn about being open. Because Jackie's right. It opens your eyes to things you might never have thought possible. First, most people are not naturally open. More often than not, we're skeptical, resistant, maybe to things that come our way. And as the saying goes, people are very open about new things as long as they're exactly like the old ones. And what keeps us from being more open? Well, habits we've established keep us from trying or considering new things. Our brains like routine because it requires less energy. And our brains use existing pathways rather than creating new ones. Research tells us that we're selective. For example, liberals tend to read liberal news and conservatives read conservative news. And this selective exposure keeps us from seeing and learning new things. And remember, being open doesn't mean you don't stick to your beliefs. It just means you're open to other views. We also tend to stop being open after the first impression. Lawyers understand this phenomenon very well. The evidence that comes first in a trial matters more than the evidence presented later. Once jurors form a belief, they stop being open to counter evidence. And we often stop being open after we form a first impression. We tend to be more open to things that support our beliefs than things that run counter to our beliefs. In an interesting experiment that demonstrates this phenomenon, researchers presented individuals with mixed evidence on the effectiveness of capital punishment on reducing crime. Even though the evidence on both sides of the issue was perfectly balanced, individuals became stronger in their initial position for or against capital punishment. The participants rated evidence that supported their initial belief as more convincing, and they found flaws more easily in the evidence that countered their initial beliefs. And in talking about being open, lest you think I'm talking about politics, let's consider a simple example. You're a leader of a team. You formed an impression of a team member, or that team member has not been in their job very long, so your prevailing view is that they don't know as much as they should. Does this make you less open to their ideas? And are you missing out as a result? You know, few of us take on new ideas because it can be uncomfortable. We aren't open because we don't trust, we don't have faith, and aren't willing. And being open requires we grow our curiosity muscles, be interested in people, have enough confidence to consider new ideas, become humble, develop empathy for other people, and believe others have as much value as you do. And if any one of you have worked in corporate America, then you know there are often meetings between a manager and a member of the team in which they review the performance of the team member. Well, throughout my career, I've often had team members come to me complaining that the feedback given by their manager was biased or wrong. 
At other times, people would complain that the feedback on a project or a product they were designing was unfair or misconstrued. In all these cases, I used to share this simple concept about being open. Imagine you have a cup in front of you. When it's upside down and you try to pour water in the cup, the water bounces off the bottom of it and doesn't enter. As a result, you're left with no water. You can't choose what to do with the water because you have none. But if your cup is right side up and you're open, then the feedback or the water can enter into your cup. Whether that feedback is right or wrong, you now have a choice. And with that choice, you can empty the water that is bad or the feedback that's bad and keep the water that is valuable. Even if you decide to empty the cup of all the water or feedback, you still now have a choice. And here's what I've learned. When you are an open cup in life, you choose more and you choose better. In the scripture, an open cup is called an open vessel. And here's what the scripture teaches us. We are not open when, like our example of the cup, our life is upside down or opposite to God. And this holds true for being opposite to our family, to our job, to ourselves, or to inspiration that comes our way. And sometimes we're not open when our vessel is full of the wrong things. In this case, there's nowhere for the water to go because the vessel is already full. This is why when we empty our vessel of bad habits, new habits enter. When we empty our vessel of pride or focus on ourselves or our stubbornness, we can fill our vessel with good things that God has in store for us. But the point is, often what's keeping us from that good thing or miracle in our life is that our vessel is full. And if you've had a serious illness or setback in your health, then you've likely experienced something like me. After getting over the shock of it, I then entered into a stage of continuously asking myself, why did this happen to me? And in this depressed state, my recovery was slow, my emotions on edge, and my mental well-being in a bad way. I filled my vessel with self-pity and anger. But somewhere along the way, it seems that God, who's really good at this, used my setback to help me be humble. And I emptied my vessel of that self-pity and turned to ask, what am I supposed to learn from this? And it was then that I started to see God's purpose in my circumstances. And this filled me with tremendous strength to recover. It is having an open vessel that leads you to where you're supposed to go. My favorite story about being an open vessel is of Elisha. The scripture says, Now there came a certain woman unto Elisha the prophet, saying, My husband is dead, and the creditor has come to take my two sons to be bondmen. In other words, as a widow, she had little money. In fact, hardly anything of value left in her house. And the people they owed money to were going to take her sons as slaves to pay the debt. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what do you have in your house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in my house, save a pot of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow some vessels of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels. Borrow more than a few. And when you return to your home, shut the door and take the vessel with the oil in it and pour oil into all the empty and open vessels. So she did as she was told. Once she collected the vessels, she shut the door and her sons helped her pour the oil from her vessel to the other vessels. 
and the oil from her vessel just kept pouring out oil. And soon all the empty vessels were full. Then she came and told Elisha what had happened by his word. And he said, go, sell the oil, pay thy debt, and live, and thy children shall rest. Now, here's the point. Sometimes we don't have enough in life, enough courage, strength, emotional well-being, and a host of other things. But when we follow inspiration, God, good counsel, and open our vessels, and be an example to our family and team of how to be open, then the little inspiration and goodness that we get hold of is magnified to our good. But it all begins with being an open vessel. You know, when this concept is put into practice by your team, in other words, when you get together and decide you'll all be open to learn all you can to act humbly on the simple things, you share ideas, energy enters into your work, and your team draws closer. It's powerful to be open as a team. One of the longest standing coaches in the NBA was Doc Rivers, who led the 2008 Celtics to their first NBA championship in 22 years. But at the beginning of the season, the 2008 title was far from a foregone conclusion. The Celtics had just acquired three superstar players, Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, and Kevin Garnett. But each player was coming from a team in which they were the star. They were the leading scorer, and all three had tremendous egos as a result. And when their preseason practices started, it was obvious that three egos were too big for the team to win. Well, Doc knew if they were going to win, the egos were going to have to be set aside, and they needed to be open to playing as a team to put their self-interests aside. Well, Rivers was a longtime board member at Marquette University, and during this time, he was leaving a meeting at the college when someone came up to him and said, your team is going to be amazing. Have you ever heard of Mbutu? And she urged him to look up the concept, telling him, it's not a word, Doc. It's a way of life. Well, Rivers could have dismissed this advice as another piece of advice from someone who didn't know much about basketball. He could have said, I don't have time to read about this, or I doubt it's anything that can help me. But Rivers was open. He went home and looked up the word. As he did, he realized that it was perfect, he said, a philosophy that could bring his star-laden team together. Ubuntu is a Zulu phrase which translates to, a person can only be a person through others. It means everyone is bound together in ways that are invisible to the eye, that there is a oneness to humanity, that we achieve ourselves by being open to others and caring as much for someone else as we do of ourselves. Well, Rivers had a bit of inspiration. He said to him, the philosophy meant, I can't be all I can be unless you are all you can be. I can never be threatened by you because you're good. Because the better you are, the better I am. It was the perfect concept for their team turning a group of talented yet disparate players into a single tight-knit unit. So he introduced the concept to his players, in particular to his three superstars. They were open. And soon they started using the word Ubuntu as their rallying cry in their way of life. Putting their selfishness aside, in games they shared the basketball more, and this made them more successful. No one person was the lead scorer. And as a team, they achieved more than they could have otherwise. And they won the championship. 
Now, imagine if Doc Rivers wasn't open and didn't listen to the woman telling him about a concept unrelated to basketball. Imagine if the star players were so focused on themselves or what they thought was the best way that they didn't buy into their coach's suggestion for how to play as a team. You can see how being open leads to great things. Now, there's a lot of research about being open and the good things that come our way when we are open or open-minded. Open people are more apt to have deep empathy for others. This happens because they've experienced in part, or at least got familiar with, how other people think and feel. This comes as a result of opening one's thinking and being open to the views and experiences of other people. You know, as my children grew into young adults, we wanted them to find opportunities to expand their compassionate view. And they were open to this opportunity. They chose on their own to take several years of their young life to serve others. My oldest served in central London, where she met and served many immigrants to that country. My son spent two years helping people in Ghana, another daughter in Hong Kong, another daughter in the Philippines. And while they did a lot of good, they also acquired something they could not have gotten any other way. They came home different people. Before they left, their humility, compassion, and view of life and gratitude was on a scale of one to 10, about a three or four. When they returned, it was a 10. They returned open to the thinking and cultures of other people. Several years ago, when my daughters were teenagers, I suggested that they travel to Ecuador for the summer to serve in an orphanage sponsored by the foundation funded by employees and members of my company. At first, my girls were close to the idea. It was their summer they'd be giving up, and it would be hard, and it was unknown, and it was scary in many ways. And on the list of excuses went, and they were close to the idea. But there was something inside them and some urging from their parents, and they started to open their hearts to the opportunity. Now, the orphanage is an anomaly in the region, run by incredible Catholic nuns. The orphan children are placed into families in which older children help care for younger children. Because the nuns know that when you get into families, you get into the heart. In families, they naturally express love and show compassion, and this is essential to human life. Well, as part of their experience, my daughters were taken miles to serve for several days at orphanages not run by the company's foundation. And while they were there, we were only able to talk with them periodically, so I was always anxious to talk to them. One day when they called, my youngest, Cammie, was crying, and I asked her what was wrong. Well, it took her several minutes to respond, and after collecting herself, she said, of this different orphanage, they won't let us hold the babies. Not quite understanding, I asked her, what do you mean? She said at these government-run orphanages, they were assigned to change the diapers and feed the babies, but the women running the orphanage would not let them hold the babies. She said the babies cry and cry with no comfort. When I asked why they couldn't hold the babies, she said, because they don't want the babies to create any attachments. Well, that summer and the experiences they had, bad and good, were life-changing for my daughters who now hold their own babies and their sister's babies and give their full heart to the children. They learned compassion. Can you see that when they were open, they became different? You know, this podcast is called Open Your Eyes. And there is a view in life, the view of other people and new perspectives that are waiting for you to be open and see. 
So without serving in Ecuador or Ghana, how do you become an open person? Well, be open to listen. Just imagine there are two people, both in the same in ability, opportunity, and age. One commits themselves to be open, to listen with intent, and show compassion by listening, and the other does none of these things. Ten years from now, tell me about each of these two people. Of course, the listener would have more friends, a larger circle, more understanding, more personal depth, and would become a skilled people person and probably would feel better about themselves. The other person probably would not. You know, one of my favorite stories about being open comes from the book of Mark. Mark chapter 7 tells a very symbolic story of the power of being open. Jesus is traveling from the coast of what is now modern-day Lebanon to modern-day Jordan. As he and his group is traveling along, the local people brought a man who was deaf and dumb. He could not speak. They asked Jesus to heal him. Well, Jesus took him away from the other people until they were alone. He looked to heaven and said to the man, be opened. And straightway, the scriptures say, the man could hear and speak. Well, this is a bit of a metaphor for you and me. Sometimes we get to living in our own closed way. We have closed our ears to new ideas. We are less powerful in our influence, and we don't know how to speak as a result. Our voice is rarely heard. But when we're opened, we take in new ideas. We get inspired. We see other people. They influence us. Our life becomes richer, and we can hear new ideas. And we speak with a new voice that is informed, curious, and full of life. Being open-minded does not imply that one is indecisive, wishy-washy, or incapable of thinking for oneself. You see, after considering various alternatives, an open-minded person can take a firm stand on a position and act accordingly. So, let me ask you this. Are you an open person? If you're not, why not? Are you tired or in the habit of doing your own thing, lack faith, risk-adverse, consumed in your own needs or problems? Whatever it is, know that the first step to anything is being open. So, what could you do today to be open? Well, for the next few days, start to practice being open. Share your concerns. Be open about your struggles. And watch. My prediction is that you'll find the answers that you're seeking. They may not come out at once, but over time, you'll find what you need to fill your vessel with the right things prepared for you in your life. Many of you listening to this podcast have read The Hobbit, a children's fantasy novel by English author J.R.R. Tolkien. The book was published in 1937 and follows the quest of Bilbo Baggins in which Bilbo gains increasing wisdom by applying his wits and common sense to challenges that come his way. After writing The Hobbit, because of the book's success, Tolkien's publisher, Stanley Unwin, asked him to write a sequel. Tolkien set to writing in the late fall of 1937, and he wrote the first chapter in one month, which was breakneck speed for him. Then he stalled. When Bilbo Baggins disappeared from his own birthday party, Tolkien had no idea where Bilbo was going or why. He didn't have a story in mind, and he finally decided the story was about Bilbo's ring, but he knew less about the ring than Bilbo. Well, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien often met on Monday mornings to discuss their common interests. In these discussions, Tolkien was open to Lewis's thoughts and ideas. He could have said, I know better, I just published a successful book, but 
from Lewis, Tolkien got the idea that Bilbo's ring was a ring of power. And it was Lewis who pushed Tolkien at times to bring his ideas to life on the page when Tolkien would get lost in his daydreams. Tolkien would later say, the unpayable debt that I owe to Lewis was not influence, as it is ordinarily understood, but sheer encouragement. He was for a long time my only audience. Only from him did I ever receive the idea that my stuff could be more than a private hobby. But for his interest and eagerness, I should have never brought the Lord of the Rings to a conclusion. Now, the Lord of the Rings would go on to sell 150 million copies, be published in 38 languages, and made into best-selling movies. All because he sought a frequent audience with Lewis, and he was open to his friend's guidance. I think we would be surprised how much our friends and family and God could give us things that would be perfect for our circumstances if we would just be open to their words and counsel. In the last book of the Bible comes what is perhaps the best advice from God. It's a single verse, somewhere around 30 words from the book of Revelation. But in these simple words is the answer to much of life and for life with God. So many of us want good things in life. We even want God to be a bigger part of our life. And we wish those good things and He would enter into our day and feel at home with us, comfortable enough to stay with us. Well, the scripture are words directly from God. And it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. God wants to enter your life. And good things are waiting for you in life. And the answers you seek are waiting for you outside your door. But you have to open the door. Let's open ourselves to let those good things and God into our life. I believe this is true. And I believe that the margin between a good life and a great life for you and me is very thin. It's only a few key actions and a way of seeing the world away from a great life. One of those key actions is to be open. And with that, we'll see that power and peace can enter your work, your thinking, and your life. Well, thanks for being here today. And be sure to join us next week as we seek to open our eyes to who and what we can become.